0: Jcastnetwork.org.
1: Welcome to the Daily Duff Differently. I'm Rabbi Adina LeWittis, and today we're studying Tractate Shabbat, page 121. This page of Talmud brings us into a discussion popular amongst those who observe Shabbat regarding what we can request of others who are not obligated to observe Shabbat to do for us on our day of rest. This category of Shabbat law is called Amirala Nochri, what we say to or ask from non-Jews during Shabbat. Sometimes this issue is discussed using the term Shabboskoy, which has a derogatory tone, but reflects a real concern of the ancient rabbis regarding how our Shabbat observance may or may not intersect with the actions of those not obligated to observe Shabbat. Given the rabbi's general position that we are not to benefit on Shabbat from the labor of a non-Jew, are there any circumstances under which we could gain from work done by someone not Jewish on Shabbat? In our own day, this discussion becomes complicated by the reality of many Jews who do not observe Shabbat interacting with those who do. But the Talmud's is very clear, as is later Jewish law, that while there may be some circumstances under which we might allow a non-Jew to do some forbidden labor on Shabbat for us, we are not to allow other Jews to do so. The mission opens by addressing a situation whereby it is Shabbat and a Jewish home is on fire and a non-Jew comes to put it out. The Jew is not putting it out because the labor involved in doing so would be a violation of Shabbat. But given the principle that we're not to benefit from work done by a non-Jew on Shabbat, may we direct the non-Jewish person to put out the fire? The rabbis here assume that there's no risk to human life presented by the fire. If there were, there'd be no doubt about whether we ourselves could put it out, even though it's Shabbat, because the mitzvah of, nefesh, of saving a life trumps Shabbat law, indeed all of Jewish law. This fire is one that presents risk of financial loss, but not loss of life. And financial loss does not trump Jewish law. But that doesn't mean the rabbis weren't concerned about loss of property. Let's see how they negotiate these risks on Shabbat. The Mishnah states, if a non-Jew comes to extinguish a fire at your home on Shabbat, we don't say to them, put it out, or don't put it out, because we're not responsible for ensuring their rest on Shabbat. But if a young Jewish child comes to put it out, we prevent him from doing so, because his resting on Shabbat is our obligation. The Mishnah identifies a gray area here. We don't order the non-Jew to put the fire out, but we also aren't required to say, don't put it out. Well, what exactly does that mean? The Gemara comes to explain. Rabbi teaches that the rabbis permitted us to declare in the presence of the non-Jew, whoever puts out the fire won't lose... In other words, we're allowed to hint that we will reward whoever puts the fire out for us, but we are not allowed to ask them to do so directly. The Gemara notes that it's unclear whether the Mishnah intended to only forbid us from ordering the non-Jew to put out the fire, but permitted us to hint to them to do so, or whether it intended to forbid us from saying anything at all to a non-Jew who comes to hell. As is common, a story is brought to seek clarification. There was a fire on Shabbat in the home of one Yosef bin Simlai, and the non-Jewish fire brigade came to put it out, He apparently worked for the local government, was a well-known man, and the civil workers came to help. But he didn't let them put out the fire, out of concern for the honor of Shabbat. A miracle happened, and rain came, which put the fire out naturally. After Shabbat, he sent rewards of money to the men who had come to help. But when the sages heard this, they said it was so unnecessary for him to prevent them from putting out the fire. And to prove their position, they quote from our Mishnah, if a non-Jew comes to put out a fire on Shabbat, we don't say put it out, but we also don't need to say don't put it out. It's interesting to consider why Yosef told them to stop if he wasn't required to. Apparently, he worried that if other Jewish people saw these non-Jewish men putting out a fire, they'd assume he directed them to do so. And then they may think that they too can order non-Jews to do work for them on Shabbat, which would diminish the sanctity of the day. His concern is something we call marit ayin, literally, in the sight of the eye, or colloquially, for the sake of appearance. There are times when we know that what we are doing is completely permitted, but could possibly be misconstrued and lead others engaging in lead others to engage in something prohibited. Yosef might have known that it was permissible for him to allow the non-Jewish men to put out his fire, but he told them to stop in order to avoid making the wrong impression on other Jews and lead them to sin and to corrupt Shabbat. A modern-day example of this concern would be the practice of those who keep kosher and wear a kippah when eating to remove it when eating dairy or vegetarian food in a non-kosher restaurant, lest other people walk by and see someone eating in that establishment wearing a kippah and make the wrong assumption that the restaurant is kosher and then go in and order non-kosher food thinking it's okay to eat. Married ayin is a fascinating topic. To what extent do we or ought we take responsibility for other people's actions? Do our actions matter more if we're a leader of a community and less if we're a layperson? So many interesting questions, no time to delve more deeply right now. The Talmud then picks up on the last part of the Mishnah, about preventing a minor Jewish child from putting out our fire on Shabbat because his observance of Shabbat is our responsibility. The explanation is offered that in our case with the fire, the Jewish child is acting to put it out because he knows it will please his father. Since the child is violating Shabbat because of his parents' misguided will, a parent who is obligated to observe Shabbat, we prevent the child from violating Shabbat himself. But, challenges the text, isn't the non-Jew also putting out the fire because they know it will please the Jew? And haven't we established that a Jew may not benefit from the actions of a non-Jew, which violates Shabbat law, so why do we allow them to continue to put it out? No, says the Talmud, the non-Jew is acting on their own will, because they're motivated to receive the reward we hinted at when we announced that anyone who puts out the fire will not lose out. Similarly, if a young Jewish child violates Jewish law of their own will, they need not be stopped. This also represents a fascinating theme, that of motivation, and the rabbi's assumption that they could discern the will and intention of the people around them. Is it really possible to discern the motivations of others, let alone of ourselves? We'd be hard-pressed to find any purists in the world. Most of us do what we do for a whole host of different reasons, some of which may be in direct conflict with one another. That's what makes human beings so fascinating. In our discussion of Shabbat law based on this page of Talmud, it's also what enables the rabbis to identify limited circumstances— we're in on Shabbat, we may in fact be able to benefit from the work of a non Jew. We then move into a new Mishnah which discusses covering something whose presence is experienced as a, as a disruption to the serenity of Shabbat a flame from a candle that might ignite the house, excrement, or a dangerous animal. This introduces the halachi concept of melacha shalot a labor that's done for something other than its defined purpose, such as placing a vessel over a scorpion not for the usual purpose of trapping it, but to simply keep it away from you. The rabbis debate the permissibility of doing something normally prohibited on Shabbat when it's for a different reason than it's normally done. After a lengthy, detailed discussion of whether and how one may employ a vessel to cover feces on Shabbat, the Talmud proceeds to discuss which animals may be killed on Shabbat. Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi says that all lethal creatures may be killed on Shabbat. Rabbi Yosef challenges this and says there are five lethal animals which may be killed on Shabbat. An Egyptian fly, a wasp from Ninveh, a scorpion from Chadyav, a snake from Israel, and a mad dog anywhere. Now, it's agreed that the list of these five creatures isn't meant to be exhaustive. It also applies to other animals, similarly dangerous and threatening. It's also agreed that the circumstances the text is dealing with here are ones where the animals present potential danger to people, not actual imminent danger, because once again, in that case, the mitzvah of pikuach nefesh of saving a life would trump all Shabbat prohibitions, and we'd be permitted without question to do what's needed to save our own lives. However, these animals are ones that were known to pose dangers to people, so the question considers whether we are permitted to act in the face of the potential danger they represent. Now, killing an animal on Shabbat violates the prohibition against slaughtering. When it's done in order to use the carcass, it's a clear violation of Shabbat law. But if it's killed for another reason, when it's a malachah shalotzuchah gufa, such as neutralizing a threat, Rabbi Yoshua agrees that the prohibition may be suspended. And he takes the lesson of the Mishnah a big step forward. The Mishnah permitted covering a scorpion to neutralize the danger it posed. Here, Rabbi Yeshua permits even killing the animal, a much more public and definitive desecration of Shabbat. Referring to a few anecdotes, a discussion ensues about the opinions of different sages regarding the appropriateness of actually killing dangerous animals on Shabbat. And it leads to an interesting notion regarding the essence of labor that is prohibited on Shabbat, namely, melechet machshevet, intended deliberate action. Two sages ask Rabbeyanai if it's permitted to kill poisonous snakes and scorpions on Shabbat. He replies, I'm accustomed to killing even a wasp on Shabbat, although more so one should be able to kill more dangerous animals like a snake or a scorpion. But it's unclear whether Rabbeyanai means you can kill the animals in any fashion, no matter how deliberate, or only in a way that's not deliberate, such as by stepping on them. Some say that Rabbeyanai meant that if you're presented with the need to kill a dangerous animal on Shabbat, you should do it in a way that's unintentional. For example, if you're walking along and in your way lies a snake or a scorpion, You can continue walking normally, and if your stride happens to land on the animal and kill it, so be it. You need not deliberately move out of the way in order to avoid killing it. Others suggest that Rabbi meant that you're permitted to kill them intentionally, but that you must make it look as if you're doing it unintentionally. This brings the concerns about Marit Ayin, the impression our appearance makes, back into our discussion. Later, halacha codifies the position that when an animal presents a mortal threat on Shabbat, or even threatens to cause us great pain, while it's preferable to trap or neutralize it, if we must kill it, we may but we, may, we should try to do so in a non-obvious way, what's called the stepping on it simply so as not to mislead an innocent or ignorant person to think that it's unconditionally fine to kill animals on Shabbat in any which way. This preserves Jewish law's concern for both Shabbat observance and the supreme importance of respecting the life of all creatures, a value that informs many streams of halacha, from the raising and slaughtering of animals for consumption, to the treatment of working animals, to the requirement to relieve an animal's pain. Collectively, these laws are called Sa'ar Balei Chayim, concerns for the suffering of animals. As an interesting end to our learning today, we should note that these directives, in some very limited circumstances, even go so far as to allow for the violation of Shabbat to care for a wounded animal. Thanks for listening and learning. Tune in tomorrow for a continuation of our discussion on the intersection of Jews and non-Jews on Shabbat.
0: I hope you've enjoyed today's episode of Daily Daf Differently, and that you'll join us again tomorrow for a new page. The music at the opening and close of this episode is Ufros from the Epichorus album One Bead, available on Bandcamp, iTunes, and Spotify.